Try as we might, as human beings, we cannot fully and satisfactorily comprehend the love of God. This is no doubt one of the reasons the Apostle John labors so diligently to teach us about God's love for His children. For instance, if you have been with us for any of these messages of our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of 1 John, you would have read the following. 1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In 1 John 3, 1 and 2, John writes this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Or how about verse 16 of that same chapter? By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you remember what John says in chapter 4, verse 7? Love is from God. The next verse says simply but profoundly, God is love. And in the very next verse, verse 9, John declares, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. He even declares further in verse 10, He loved us and sent His Son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 16 asserts, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. I suspect if you're like me, even after having read all of these verses, yet even with all of them, each of which we've looked at in some detail during our exposition, John isn't through teaching us about the love of God which even after we're through today, we'll not even be able to understand the unfathomable depths of God's love for His people. And as we come now to the end of the so-called love chapter of John, John wants to conclude for us his teaching on love with a series of five statements regarding God's perfect love. That's the title of the message this morning. God's perfect love. And we want to see five specific aspects or statements of John regarding this God's perfect love. Here's the first one. Number one, the first of these five statements, God's perfect love fuels my confidence for the day of judgment. God's perfect love fuels my confidence for the day of judgment. Look at 1 John 4, 17. 1 John 4, 
17. John says, by this is love perfected with us or among us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. The first thing that John defines about God's perfect love, if you want to know what God's perfect love is, that which is so incredible, it is this, that God's perfect love actually works its work in me to the degree that as a Christian I gain greater and greater confidence or assurance or certainty for the ultimate day when I, along with everyone else, is to be judged by God. Now, you could ask the question, but what is the basis of my confidence? How is it that I'm going to have confidence or assurance or certainty in the day of God's final judgment? What is the basis of it? Do I stand on my own merits when I appear before the God of the universe? If so, that doesn't give me any confidence at all, does it? If I'm to stand on my own merits, if I'm to stand up upon who I am as a person or what I've done as an individual, I have no basis for any confidence, any assurance, any certainty at all whatsoever as I stand before God in eternity. Not at all. What fuels my confidence, John says, is this, the tangible expression of God's love in the cross work of His Son. Do you know how I know that? Look back at verse 17. John says, By this is love perfected with us. You see that phrase, by this? It refers to what John has just said in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And the phrase, so we have come to know and to believe, is tied back to the previous verse, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And this confession of Jesus as the Son of God is tied to what is said in verse 14 about the apostolic message. And we have seen, John said, and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And this apostolic testimony is known by us to be true because of verse 13, because it declares, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And the direct confidence I have as a Christian who has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit is because of the perfect love of God who John tells us in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Which then ties us right back to the verse that we're on. The perfect love of God. That's how I know I'm confidently assured in the day of judgment. Because of the perfect love of God. You see, God's perfect love 
assures, fuels my confidence for the day of judgment. I have no fear in the day of judgment because what fuels my confidence is that God's perfect love in Jesus Christ gives me all that I need to be able to stand before God and to be received, to be accepted by Him. Not anything I've done. Uh, Not anything I am. In fact, if it is based upon anything I am or anything I've done, then I will stand in the day of judgment, or shall I say I will not stand in the day of judgment. I will be condemned in the day of judgment because I am attempting to stand on everything else except God's acceptable means. And God's acceptable means is the cross work of Jesus Christ. That's the visible demonstration, the tangible demonstration of the love of God for me. That's what fuels my confidence for the day of judgment. God's love, John says, is perfected. Perfected among us. Made complete, he means. Brought to fruition. And it's as a direct result of the spiritual rebirth that we've received by the Holy Spirit so that we might understand the gospel of God's Son who was sent by Him to be the Savior of the world, the satisfaction for our sins which were born by Him, not us. And when I repent and believe in Jesus and confess Him to be the Lord of my life, my confidence in not facing the wrath of God is fueled by the magnanimous love of all Almighty God and nothing about me. That's the love of God. That's the perfect love of God. Do you have that perfect love? Is that a part of your life? And may I say, do you have this confidence in the love of God for the day of judgment? You know, there are a lot of people who eschew the day of judgment. They want to do away with it. They don't want to think about it. They want it to be delayed. They want it to go away. But in the heart of every man, woman, and child, there is a gnawing sense, there is an inevitable sense of the day of God's judgment that you will stand ultimately in front of the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, and you will stand before Him ultimately to give an account for your life. What is your account? What is your account? Well, if you're like John, you have no account other than the account of Jesus Christ. This is your confidence. You remember what he said in chapter 2, verse 28? And now... Little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Do you have confidence in the day of the Lord? Do you have confidence or will you be in that gnawing sense of your heart, your conscience, shrinking away from Him at His coming? Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Do you have that confidence? And by the way, don't miss that last phrase in verse 17 of chapter 4. Notice what John says. Because as He is, 
so also are we in this world. What does that mean? What's John referring to? Well, I think it simply means that just as Jesus loved His own when He was in the world, His own disciples, so also are we to love others in this world, which also solidifies our confidence for the day of judgment. Yes, even that can help you, assist you, give you confidence for the day of judgment. Now, I thought you just said, preacher, that there isn't anything other than the cross work of Christ. That's true. That's the, that's the ground of your salvation. That's the basis for it. But guess what else can give you confidence for the day of judgment? It isn't the ground of it, but it is the gauge of it. And that is how you love others. Because as He is, or as Jesus was in the world, so also are you. God and His love fuels our salvation confidence, which is the ground of it, ground of it based on Christ's cross. And that's what gives us the ultimate confidence in the day of judgment. But we also have as the gauge of it, from our perspective, our love for others. Just as Jesus was in the world, so are we in the world. And when we love like He loves, that gives us greater and greater confidence for the day of judgment. It isn't the ground of it, but it is the gauge of it. The ground of it, the basis for it, the cross of Christ. The evidence for it, the revealing of it, uh, the very tangible expression of how you know you have a level of confidence. It's because of your repentance from sin, your belief in Jesus Christ, and the tangible expression of your love for others, which gives you an ever-increasing fueling of your confidence that you're on your way to heaven. That's right. That is absolutely correct. And why would John put that there? Why would he say, so also is Christ in the world, so also are you in the world? He loved his own, you love your own. Why would he say that? Well, don't forget, the secessionists, the ones who departed, First John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not really of us. These, these genuine disciples can still hear these barking calls. They, they steer, still hear what it appears to be the siren sounds of those who say, well, I love God too. I've seen God. I've had visions of God. Have you? I love others. Do you? And it can be intimidating, threatening. And John says, don't believe them when they say they've had visions of God. They don't love the brothers, and because of that, they have no basis whatsoever to claim what they claim. I'm telling you that you can know that because of the propitiation for your sins by Jesus, and that you can even know by the very evidence of your heart of love toward others, so as Jesus is in the world, and so as He loved His own, so you can have the tangible expression that you are on your way to heaven and that you will stand in the day of judgment when you too, like He is in the world, like He loved in the world, you're in the world, you can love others. There's your evidence. Your basis, the cross. The evidence, your love for others. That's God's perfect love. That's what He 
That's what He provides. Uh, that's what He engineers in you. Uh, that's that which you are motivated by. And there's a second one, a second statement that John uses here. Look at verse 18. God's perfect love casts out any fear of punishment. And you notice I've put exclamation points at the end of every one of these outline points. I did it because I think these are exciting. Exciting! These are exciting for Christians. Can you imagine anything else more exciting than to know that when you are facing the day of judgment that God's perfect love casts out any fear of such judgment? Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, one of the things we need to do immediately with this verse is to clarify what John means by fear. And first of all, what he's not referring to, what he's not talking about here when he talks about fear is the fear of God. You've seen that phrase many, many times in your Bibles, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. He's not talking about perfect love casting, casting out the fear of God. That wouldn't make any sense, would it? The perfect love of God which casts out the fear of God doesn't make any sense. That's not what he's talking about. He isn't even saying that there's no human fear in love in the sense of a Christian's fear of God because there is. The idea is, what kind of fear of God are we talking about in perfect love? Well, I said it in my prayer when we prayed for the graduates. Fear of God is holy reverence and healthy dread. Now, someone might immediately say, you mean Christians should have a continuing healthy dread of God? Yes. Why? Because He's God and we're not. That's why. Now, but notice the adjectival qualifier. A healthy dread. Healthy dread. It's not that you fear punishment. It's that you fear the Almighty because He's Almighty. You see? That's the difference. We're not talking about a slavish fear of punishment. We're not talking about some kind of sinful fear. We're talking about a godly fear, a fear of God. And that's a, that's a holy reverence and that's a healthy dread of the person of God as almighty as He is and He is transcendent and yes, we are to be near Him and yes, He is eminent to us and all of those things are true but in the end, because we are man, we are mankind and because we are still sinful human beings, we are created by that almighty God. He's the creator and sustainer of all of the earth. We will always and forever, even throughout all eternity, have a healthy dread of Almighty God. There will always be a holy reverence and an almighty healthy dread of the person, the work, the nature, the immensity, the essentiality, the truth of God, of who He is. That's always going to be with us. But that's not what John is talking about. John is talking about sinful fear. John's talking about the fear of punishment. The fear of judgment. 
That's what he's saying. Notice precisely how he defines it himself. Fear has to do with punishment. That's the kind of fear he's talking about. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He's saying something like this. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are utterly secure in Him. You don't have to fear any ultimate punishment. And while you'll always have a holy reverence and a healthy dread of the person of God Almighty, this maker of heaven and earth, yet you do not need to fear the ultimate punishment which awaits all of those who don't have a holy reverence and a healthy dread of God. That's the difference. Anybody who doesn't have a holy reverence and a healthy dread of God should be fearful. They should be fearful. They should have a fear of punishment, but not believers, not genuine Christians. We don't have any fear of punishment. Uh, Maybe to help you, the difference in our relationship with our Heavenly Father is that we don't fear Him as, as judge by way of our relationship to Him, but we fear Him in terms of a Father in our filial relationship with Him. He's our Father. You always need to have a healthy respect for your Father, don't you, children? Always try to move in there when you have the opportunity. There's always a respect. There's always that sense that He's different than I am in some essential characteristics. And that's exactly what's true about our relationship with God. Yes, it is absolutely true that I don't have any fear of the punishment from God in the judgmental sense. He's the judge of all of those who don't have a relationship with Him. And even in my relationship with Him, in a filial context, I have fear, but it isn't the fear of punishment. He's not, he's not my, my judge in the relationship sense, but, but He is my Father in a punitive sense when I disobey Him. And John sets up these two contrasts and says, I want you to know that even though these claimants, these secessionists, these heretics, these false teachers, they're claiming a lot of things and they're claiming that they know God and that they have had visions of God and revelations of God and that they love in a certain different kind of way than you do, I'm telling you their claims aren't true. They are heretics. They're false teachers. Don't believe what they say and don't live their lifestyle and don't be swayed. Don't be persuaded by them. If you do, you're going to lack assurance. You're going to lack confidence. And I'm here to teach you about confidence. And I tell you this, if you understand God's perfect love, if you understand it in the way that John is teaching it, you'll understand this. Perfect love casts out any fear of punishment. It's gone. It's gone. Look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. You want to know what happened to fear, the fear of punishment? I'll tell you what happened. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15, this is what happened. Paul says, For you, speaking to Christians, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Fear. You see, unbelievers are bound in fear all their lives. 
all their lives. Fear of judgment, fear of punishment. It's a slavery to fear. And he says, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's that filial relationship with God. See, you've passed out of a relationship with God as judge to a relationship with God as Father. You've been given the spirit of adoption as sons by which you can legitimately cry out, Abba, Father. No fear. No fear of judgment. No fear of punishment. You say, wait a minute. Are are you telling me that every single non-Christian, every unbeliever, I'll quote you, Lance, every unbeliever has this fear of punishment all their life long? Yes, they do. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. It's absolutely taught in the Word of God, absolutely. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, even backing up to verse 14, Christ came so that He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and deliver, this is what Christ's cross work is all about, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You might not have readily recognized it. You might not have been consciously aware of it every moment. But as an unbeliever, you were subject to the slavery of lifelong fear. Fear of death. The fear of hell. The fear of punishment. And crossing over via the cross itself. God has been changed toward you from judge to father. What a joy. What an incredible joy. And by the way, notice here, he says, there is no fear in love, 1 John 4, 18, but perfect love, notice this, casts out fear. Oh, I love that phrase. Why? Casts out. It's from the form of the Greek word balo. And it means to cast out. Uh, It means to throw out. That Greek word balo is used in the Gospels of when Jesus cast out devils. Cast out demons. In fact, this particular word is only used one other time and it's in Matthew 25 and it's the great white throne judgment and it's the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And it says about those goats, they will be cast out into the lake of fire. They'll be judged. And God is their judge. And God will forever be their judge. Guess what? First John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. I sound like a televangelist, don't I? <laughs> casts out. Casting out fear. Let me ask you a question. Do you yourself want to stand before God in eternity? Or do you want your fear to be cast out in the day of judgment? I don't think there's much of a choice. I don't want to be standing there. I don't want to be standing there in the day of judgment. In fact, what I want is to be standing there knowing 
that it's not me who needs to be cast out, but my fear itself has been cast out. You can have that. You can have that by repenting of your sins and believing in Christ. Don't you want your fear and not yourself to be cast out? It can happen. It can happen today. It can happen right now. If you are a person who does not know Jesus Christ and you're here, man, woman, or child, and you have fear in your heart, you are fearful of judgment. You don't know what's going to happen. You have this gnawing sense that if you were to stand before God right this moment, you would be standing before Him in judgment. And it wouldn't be your fear that's cast out. It would be you who's cast out of the kingdom, just like one of the goats, and that you'd be in eternity, in eternity of, of a hell of an existence because you did not know Jesus Christ. But you can know Christ. And you can have not yourself, but your fear cast out. What kind of fear? The fear of punishment. Isn't that what he says? Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John says that perfect love casts out, judges, expels, throws out all fear of divine punishment. Is that what you have in your heart? Is that what you know about yourself? That all fear of divine punishment is cast out. Now someone might readily say, that sounds so proud. That sounds so arrogant. Uh, That that sounds like you've got it all wired, that that you know exactly where you're headed. You can know that. It's It's not sinful presumption. It's not haughty pride. It's confidence in God. Confidence in the perfect love of God. Confident that you've experienced this grand love of God that judges all sinful human fear at the cross of Jesus and casts that fear into outer darkness. You can know that. Do you know that? Do you want yourself to be cast into outer darkness or simply your sinful fear? It's not much choice. Perfect love casts out all fear of divine punishment. Don't be one of those. Don't be one of those who through sinful fear all your life long is punished. Rather, by casting yourself upon the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and by recognizing the perfect love of the Father. See what great a love the Father has given to us that that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Be one of those. Be a child of God. Allow Him to cast your fear of punishment out by seeing it banished forever. Number three. Number three. Oh, this is too marvelous for words. God's Perfect love precedes and prompts my love for others. Verse 19. I'm going to read it. It may be too fast. We love because He first loved us. That's really fast. Too fast. Dwell on it. Think about it. Sometimes the profundity is in the simplicity. 
we love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. What a marvelous, God-glorifying statement that is. God's perfect love precedes any love we possess. Because notice what John says. We love because He, what? First loved us. First in what sense? Well, I thought a lot about that. First in what sense? Here's what I came up with. First in every sense. There isn't any sense in which He did not, through His first doings, do everything. That's it. It was first in priority and it was first in time. It was first in expression and it was first in importance. It was first in impact and it was first in value. It was first, first, first in every way. That's why I am unabashedly, unashamedly called both theologically and historically a Calvinist. As over against an Arminian. Those are historical and theological terms that simply mean this. If you're a Calvinist, you believe this statement. We love because He first loved us. Theologically, if you're an Arminian, you struggle with that verse. That's true. Theologically, that's true. Historically, that's true. That's why the two camps are the way they are. My love for God is preceded by His love for me. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what it says. And it says it in such simple terms that you don't have to be a Calvinist to figure it out. You don't. That's just what it says. 1 John 4.10. You remember that? 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8. In this, God has demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. Utterly crystal clear. There is no way around it. We love. We have the capacity to love. We love others. Not because we have in and of ourselves. Not because we decided to. Not because we wanted to take the initiation. Not because we woke up one day and said, I think I'll be a lover of others. We love. Because He first loved us. And notice also that John states that we as Christians love because He loved us. You see that? We love because He loved us. In other words, the only reason we are prompted to love anyone else is precisely because Jesus Christ loved us in the first place. And I believe He's referring to Christ when He says He. We love precisely because Jesus Christ loved us. I'm prompted to love my brothers and sisters in Christ because of the demonstrated love of Calvary. I see what love is at the cross, and therefore I'm prompted by that love to love others out of the overflow of that love. 
Oh, I wish we could spend hours upon hours upon hours in this one verse. You know we could do it. I heard my friend Phil Johnson one time preach a message on this passage, 1 John 4.19, and he got all five points of Calvinism out of that one verse. Now you say, how in the world? I don't know either, but he did it. I heard the message. Right on. We don't have enough time to go through all of the various aspects of this Christ-exalting series of statements regarding the doctrines of grace, but we could. Nevertheless, I ask you, do you love? Do you love? You say, yes, I do. Not perfectly, but I do love. And I believe it's a Christ-exalting love, and I do love other believers, and I don't love all the ways that I know I need to love, but I do love. Guess what, my friends? If that's true, it's because God first loved you. It preceded your love. And it prompted your love. You love because He loved you. You can't love in the way that Christ loves, in the way that Christian love is to be demonstrated, unless you see in the very demonstration of the cross how Christ Himself loved. And when you see that, you realize, wait a minute, from eternity past this was planned. And when it was planned in eternity past, I realized that God had a plan to bestow His love upon me. And when He bestowed that love upon me, I realized it was from the very foundation of the world. And when it came to me in space and time, it was the very love I saw demonstrated on the cross because God opened up my spiritual eyes and I saw it for the first time in my life and yes, I affirm that I only love because I am first loved by Christ. We love because He first loved us. So, guess what? False teachers, heretics, claimants, secessionists, whatever you want to call them, if they don't love Christ, guess what it says about their love? They don't love. They don't love because they don't love Christ. They haven't seen the demonstration of Christ. They haven't seen Christ's love. They repudiate Christ's love. They deny Christ's love. They deny that He's come in the flesh. John says you're a liar if you deny that. And if you're a liar, and if you you deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you deny that He's the Son of God, you deny that He's come in power, you deny the day of the coming judgment of God, then you, in fact, do not love, and you don't love anybody around you. It's as black and white as that. Do you love because He first loved you? Are you even moving around in the sphere of love? Is it, is it even in your orbit? Do, do you recognize the initiated love of Christ in your love for others? Are you a love, lover of others? You say, yes, I am. Yes, I do. Well, John anticipates that. Number four, fourth statement, God's perfect love stands over against spurious professors of love. Notice this, verse 20. If anyone says, this is John anticipating, someone say, yes, I I, I do love like that. Notice what he says. If anyone says, remember that's his key idea. Here's someone who's a sayer. Let's see if they can back up their claim of what they say. If anyone says, I love God, yes, I do. And hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
There's the test. There it is. Somebody says, yes, I, I love God. I love others. I'm one of the gang. I'm here. I'm a part of you. I'm in the group. I'm a part of the community. And John's warning us. There are always going to be bogus professors, spurious professors of love. They're going to be in every fellowship from ancient time until now. They're going to be right along with us saying, I love God. I love others. But it isn't going to be true. It isn't going to be true of some of them. And John says, I have to warn you, if anyone says, I love God. Can you hear that in the confessional statement of the waters of baptism? Can you hear it in the testimony behind the pulpit microphone? Can you hear it in the lunch context of asking the question of someone? Let me hear your testimony. I love God. I love God. John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Remember that idea of seeing God? Remember verse 12? Look back there. John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Remember, if there were those who had claimed that they were receiving visions of God, revelations of God Himself, and yet did not love others in the body of Christ, they proved conclusively that they were liars about their relationship to God. John told them that the very proof of of God's presence with His people is their mutual love for one another, not the claims of visions and revelations from God the Father. Here in verse 20, says it similarly, that if anyone claims they love God and yet hates his brother, that person neither loves people or God. He's a spurious professor of love. He, do, he doesn't mean it when he says he loves others. He doesn't mean it when he says he loves God. His is a bogus love. And John teaches that if no one has ever seen God, and no one has, and yet Christians still love Him, it would be no challenge for us to love our brothers whom we readily and continually see, even if we've never seen God. In verse 12, for someone to claim that they've seen Almighty God, and in verse 20, for someone to claim that they love God, and yet both times they are found not to love others whom they do see and could actually minister to, because they do see them, they're liars on both counts. They've neither seen or loved God because they fail the human love test. Maybe we could boil it down to this. Show me a man or a woman who loves other Christians with a genuine Christian love and I'll show you a person who even though they haven't seen God, they love Him. They love Him. Do you remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8? Though you have not seen Him, referring to Christ, you what? You love Him. Though you've not seen Him. I haven't seen Christ. I haven't seen the risen Christ. I haven't seen the person of Christ. I haven't seen the, the nails in his hands and feet. I haven't seen the, the spear scar in his side. I haven't seen that. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? John's saying, Peter's saying, I don't have to see God 
to love God when I know the love of God, when it's being perfected in me, when God's love is being made complete in me, when it's being brought to fruition, I see my brothers and sisters, I see them enough to be able to minister to their needs and know that God abides in me and therefore I know that God exists. It's amazing how practical John is. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 practicality of it all. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And what does abiding in the light mean? Means abiding in God because God is light. Look at chapter 3 verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, here it is, I see my brother... If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, this is the brother who you see, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The answer is, it doesn't. You're ministering to your brother whom you can see regardless of the God whom you cannot see. But you do see him. You see him when you love others because you know that he abides in you. And seeing Him in that way is totally sufficient. You don't have to have visions. You don't have to have revelations. This is incredible. God's perfect love, perfected in believers, motivates them to reach out and to love others. And I ask, are you genuinely reaching out to others? It shows God's loving presence abiding with you. You don't need visions. You don't need revelations. You need to see your brothers and sisters around you who have need. And when you meet those needs, it's sufficient that God abides in you and you see Him in that way. That's sufficient. You know He exists. And the difference between someone who sees the need of a brother and closes his heart to him, God doesn't abide in him, and they don't see God. They don't see God at work. They don't don't see God in them. It reveals who you really are. Five and finally, the fifth statement, God's perfect love demands my love for others. Look at verse 21. And this commandment we have from Him. Here's the wrap-up of the love chapter of John. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whose commandment? This commandment we have from Him. Christ. It's Christ. We have, John says, a commandment from Christ to love. We have this commandment. We're to show or demonstrate our love for God by being obedient to the command of Christ to love others. As we close, here's what I think it looks like. It's, it's an exhortation or an admonishment to love by Christ. That's a command. And it's an example of Christ to love others by way of the depiction of His life, the example of His life. You remember the 
middle or latter sections of the Gospel of John, turn to John 13. John 13. I'll tell you how this command works itself out, both by Jesus' life and His commands to us. Here's the commands, the admonitions, the exhortations of Jesus to love. This fills out what John means and this commandment we have from Him. Here it is, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you you have love for one another. Look at chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's love for Christ. Not just love for others, but love for Christ. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. There's the abiding concept again. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Chapter 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. In just a few short chapters, the Binding up of the love commands of Jesus. That's what John means when he says, and this commandment we have from him. Several commands we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brothers. And it's not just, it's not just Jesus commanding it of you. He shows you how to do it. Look back at John 13. This is, this is one of the most incredible statements in all of Holy Scripture. John 13:1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them to perfection. What a statement. Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, the ultimate example of humility, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. I've loved you. I've served you. You ought to do it with each other. This is amazing. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Who was that? John. Let me ask you, would you rather be known for all perpetuity as John or the one whom Jesus loved? Jesus loved John. That's why he was so impacted by it. That's why he talks so much in his fourth chapter of his first epistle about love. Look at chapter 14, verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me. You see, his example, so that the world may know that I love the Father. His example, look at chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John 16, verse 27. 
For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and believe that I came from God. Chapter 17, verse 23. I in them and you in Me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent Me and loved them even as you loved Me. Now it's the love of the Father. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory that you've given Me because you loved Me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Love, love, love. What what an incredible fourth chapter. All on love. Love of the Father, love by the Father, love of Christ, love by Christ, loving each other, loving one another, being loved by one another. What a great test. What a great assurance. Let's love, shall we? Let's bow together. Father, we we must love. But we can't know love unless you have loved us. And we thank you for loving us, for giving us your Son. May we love in ways that show our love for others, which shows our love for you. Lord, I pray that if anyone today still has residing in their heart this fear of punishment, this fear of divine retribution, that you would show them through today's message and through our singing and through our praying and through our giving and through our worship, the love of Jesus Christ, which can cast out any fear. Thank you for your perfect love, Father, as seen in your Son, provided by your Spirit. In the holy name of the Trinity we pray. Amen.